So what I would like to reflect on in this evening's talk is dimensions of desire. More than 2,500 years ago, the Buddha, as a young man, sat underneath the Bodhi tree and embarked upon what he later came to call a noble quest or a noble search. And personally, I think it's very important not to overly idealize or romanticize the Buddha's search because the search that he undertook was, of course, not at all unique, particularly to him, that throughout time, in countless men, countless women, young and old, have really embarked on very similar searches in all cultures and traditions, in cloisters, on mountainsides, in the midst of families and communities. Undertaking a quest to understand what it means to live an authentic life, guided by inner authority, by understanding, a life that is then embodied in dignity and compassion and, we might say, an intentional life. I always find it quite something to reflect on when we come into a retreat like this, to, to just know that, uh, you know, in so many places on the world, in the world, there are people doing what we are doing right now, you know, shivering in some Himalayan cave or <laughs> sweltering in some Burmese jungle or, you know, around the world there are those who are doing what we are doing right now. Learning to be still, learning to listen inwardly, endeavoring to understand this life. Lal Del, a young woman, uh, 14th century India, once wrote, to learn the scriptures is easy, to live them hard. The search for the real is no simple matter. Deep in my looking, the last words vanished, Joyous and silent, the waking that met me there. The Buddha's search, I think like all noble searches, noble quests, really began with perhaps a mixture of both disappointment and insight. The Buddha saw in his own experience that ultimate security and peace and freedom was actually not going to be found in the world of conditions. And that he saw in his own life, in his his own experience, that a life of aversion and a life of resistance was in reality not a life of dignity and not a life of freedom. And prior to his own awakening, the Buddha described as his, mi- his mind as disquieted, as unreliable, where just too many things in the world and too many things in his own mind were acting as the gatekeeper 
of his happiness. And he saw for himself how often he felt swept along in life upon waves of habit and impulse and reactivity. He also saw for himself that as long as he lived in a way where he was locked in a belief in insufficiency and craving and lack, he was also going to be equally locked in a life of agitation, a diminished sense of possibility, and an undignified life. And in many ways, these were the insights that brought the Buddha to the Bodhi tree. And I think for many of us, it's really just the same insights that bring us to a cushion or to a retreat. Now, when the Buddha described this path as a noble search, he described it as seeking for the unborn the supreme security, the freedom from bondage, the search for freedom from fear and sorrow, the search for a sublime peace. I mentioned this in the beginning of the retreat, that when we hear the word noble, we might a little bit struggle to apply it to our own experience here to what we are doing here when we sit around in our shorts and sweats and looking forward to lunch and, you know, lost in fantasy and really just doing our best to find a breath or two. (laughs) The word noble sounds a little dramatic or perhaps even a little overstated. Yet, by all accounts, the Buddha didn't sit under the Bodhi tree you know, radiating boundless kindness and friendliness, thinking only sublime thoughts and gracing the world with boundless compassion. No, he sat with fantasy and aversion and dullness and doubt and uncertainty. But he sat with them and looked them in the eye and investigated them and came really to know that those mental states and those winds were really not his true home. And in a sense, you know, by all accounts, about him in meeting these, these kind of winds of doubt and aversion, he simply said, I know you, and refused to participate in their dance. Now, I think this word noble is actually better translated into a verb form, ennobling, to reflect on what it is that ennobles our life, what it is that brings nobility or ennobles our heart. Because this truly is a much-used word in this teaching and on this path, and Rather somehow just dismissing this word and feeling it has nothing to do with our, you know, kind of uncertain and hesitant steps that we take on this path. And rather than dismissing this word ennobling and somehow feeling unworthy of it, I actually feel that this is a word that can help us to reframe our own path 
and our own quest. When we come here, even though we don't always articulate it to ourselves, do we not long to know what it means to live a life of natural dignity and poise? And to, to have our words and our acts spring from love and compassion? Do we not long to know what it means to live in a way free from fear and to find in our own hearts the roots of an unshakable peace and freedom? Do most of us not long to know what it means to be the gatekeeper of our own happiness and well-being? Coming here is often part of a journey that begins long before we ever arrive here, a journey to understand how to live in harmony with others and how to find the, the courage and the fearlessness that allows us to meet this ocean of sorrow and conflict and pain in our world with wise action and with grace. Awakening, as the Buddha described it, was not about some mysterious entry necessarily into some transcendental domain accessible only to those who kind of got a special visa. But as the Buddha put it, as I am, so are you. As you are, so am I. When the Buddha described the understandings he came to under the Bodhi tree, he said he simply began to see things the way they actually are. Born of conditions, changing and empty of any independent self-existence. And he said that in that knowing, he came to know the end of struggle and the end of anguish. In a very real sense, the Buddha awakened to an inner sense of freedom and sufficiency. And in that, saw really the end of lack, the end of all beliefs in insufficiency. And he described this very radical change of heart in a teaching many of you will be familiar with, of the four ennobling truths. That there is struggle, there is sorrow, there is disquiet. There is an origin to struggle, and there is an end, and there is a path to its end. And to live in the light of that understanding, that reality, is to discover an inner nobility and to live a noble life. Now, what the Buddha, of course, discovered, he really described as being an understanding available to all of us. And he invited us, a call, to really come to the same understanding, to find within ourselves, again, the same radical change of heart, again, which may be a radical change of life. Now, these four ennobling truths are kind of like, they're not a doctrine. They're not a Buddhist belief system. 
that we're asked to sign up to or subscribe to, you know, or somehow be a member of some exclusive club. Instead, these four noble truths were really offered as an invitation to look and see, is this true in your own experience? It was a call to a responsiveness, an investigation. In fact, as the Buddha put it, suffering, struggle, anguish is something not to be avoided or dismissed, but something to be understood. At the causes of suffering and struggle, something to be investigated and let go of. That the end of struggling and suffering is for all of us something to be realized. And the path is something to be cultivated and embodied. And in a way, the Buddha's invitation was that to really understand this for ourselves will be to discover a natural authenticity and inner authority and to find the ways to live with an unhesitating compassion and responsiveness to the life around us. However, it must be said that these (coughs) teachings and understandings were not necessarily meant to console us. They were meant to challenge us. They were meant to challenge us in a way, not negatively, but to disturb us in a creative and, I think, positive way. Because this path is actually about radically changing the shape of our mind and heart. So this evening I want primarily to look at the causes of struggle and anguish and torment, but also to look at the paradox of desire and to examine a little bit the ways in which craving is the servant of the belief in insufficiency and the way that craving, rather than calming or easing, the belief in insufficiency instead only strengthens it. First to look at this word desire, I think sometimes when people listen to these teaching, they often hear a kind of blanket condemnation of desire, a sort of blanket condemnation of any form of longing. But I actually think that this is a misunderstanding of the teaching. So I'd like to unpack a little bit the dimensions of desire that we do encounter in our lives. First, there is the dimension of desire that can be answered. I think the word in Pali is padasa or padasi. These are kind of the very practical desires that help us to navigate through life. You know, we get out of the morning and it's a good idea to want to brush your teeth. You know, this is not actually going to create suffering. It's a desire that has an answer. If if you see a bear in the woods, (coughs) it's a good idea to have the desire to steer clear. 
Our body sends us messages of hunger and thirst, and we respond. It pours with rain, and we have the desire to put up our umbrella. It's the fabric of caring for our bodies, caring for our lives. We see a child about to fall off a cliff. We certainly have the desire to rescue them. The interesting thing about this level of desire, this dimension of desire, first, it is answerable, and second, it leaves very few residues in the mind. You know, we don't sort of, after brushing our teeth, have a big story about should I have brushed my teeth or not brushed my teeth, you know. You know, should I really have had that glass of water or not had that? You know, it's done. It arises, answered, done, no residues in the mind. Now, another realm of desire in this teaching, it goes much more by the Pali word of chanda or wholesome kusala is the Pali word. Kusala longings that are translated into action. And again, these are longings and desires that have an answer. They can be answered. There are longings, they are the longings that bring us here. The longings, the desires to know a greater kindness, a greater spaciousness, a greater compassion, the longings for authenticity, connectedness, the longings to be free from pain, the longings that are part of every great social and political and cultural revolution that has ever happened in human history. Without those longings, there would never have been an answer, uh, an end to child slavery or, 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 or apartheid or uh, you know, the ending of the caste system in the Buddhist, you know, the question of the caste system in the Buddhist time in India. There would never have been any of those changes without those kusala, noble longings that are translated into action. Even our capacity to be here is in a way really the fruition of the wholesome desires, the wholesome longings of countless people before us to create places of refuge, to create places where we can gather to make this possible for us. These kusala desires, these noble longings, I think, these are actually something that are not honored enough. Sometimes they're not given enough voice. They're, they're not even respected enough. We, we tend to have this kind of like, you know, exaggerated sense of modesty about what we're doing in this path. Oh, I like a little more calm, you know. But actually, you know, when things fall away, really appreciating and honoring and respecting the power of those very deep longings is something that actually inspires us and motivates us and sustains us on the path. And they actually give shape and direction to our path, which is very important. Because I'm sure we all recognize how easy it is for us to be drawn into you know, the daily preoccupations and busyness that can create so much amnesia about what we truly value and truly long for. It just gets lost. 
So these, these wholesome, these kusala desires, in a way they are the longings that take us out of the palace of familiarity, the palaces of illusion and habit. And they are the longings that help us to stop and to question, really, what are we dedicated to? Because everything that we give time and attention and energy to in our lives is going to follow on from that which we are dedicated to. What do we most deeply value? Because without these longings, clear in our hearts, and not only clear in our hearts, but also translated into intention and embodied, you know, forgetfulness can just govern our day. You know, we can be so swept along day to day in the tide of doing and hoping and more obsessively endeavoring to arrange our world as much as possible to protect ourselves from what we dislike and fear and to pursue what we think we need and want. We can be so easily lost in those habits and then Every now and again, you know, something comes along that reminds us that the only real certainty in this life is that we will die. And perhaps then these longings remind us to value the manner of our living above all else. Our longings are these kusula, wholesome desires, are really here to remind us of what is possible. And in a way, this is the promise of this teaching, that the seeds of great compassion, the seeds of wakefulness lie within each of us, awaiting our cultivation, awaiting us to tend to those seeds, that the seeds of profound freedom and dignity and poise really live within each of our hearts. And these longings, these very kusala, wholesome longings, need to be translated into something more than wishful thinking or hopes or ideals, but into a path, into a path that ennobles our lives. These desires, too, are desires that lead to the end of desire. They are desires that can be answered. In the Dhammapada, one of the much-loved early texts in this teaching, there's a saying that all that we are now is a result of what we were. And that all that we will be tomorrow, or even in the next moment, will be the result of all that we are now. I find that such an important teaching. First of all, because it brings this sense of immediacy and possibility to really have a sense that every moment in our life is a potential turning point. That every moment in our life is really an invitation to look at where we are, the moments when we make our home in busyness or in calm in anxiety or in simplicity, in aversion or in kindness. The 
fruition of this path, the end of suffering, does, doesn't lie in some impossible, unattainable, necessarily breakthrough moment. There is something much more immediate about bringing about the end of struggle and suffering. Coming, teaching on retreats reminds me of this again and again. I, I can't even tell you how still, you know, after you know, so many years of teaching, how I continue to be personally awed by the changes and the transformations that people can experience in such a short period of time on a retreat. You know, I would suggest even now just to think back the first night you arrived. Quite likely, your mind is not exactly the same today. I'm amazed in such a short time the movement that can happen from contractedness to more spaciousness, from agitation to more ease, from confusion to more understanding. It's not as if in that few days, you know, the answers are found to every life dilemma, that every issue is solved, that every difficulty has disappeared. But our hearts can be changed, and it's not geographical. It actually has to do with the intentionality and the remembering and the sincerity and commitment that you bring to tending to your own path. And isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? It is learning, remembering to care for the quality of our heart in this moment. This is a small piece of a poem by Naomi Shihab Wu. Maybe she have nigh. It says, when someone invites you to a party, remember what parties are like before answering. Walk around feeling like a leaf. Know you could tumble any second. Then decide what to do with your time. Might be also deciding to do with your what you do with your attention. You may have been invited to a lot of parties over this last few days. You know, the fantasy party, the rehearsal party, you know, the party, you know, the nostalgia party, the trips down memory lane. Perhaps we learn a little bit more about we can choose what we remember. We can choose to walk around like a leaf, knowing we could tumble any second. Then sometimes we decide there's other things to do than go to the party. There is another dimension of desire, which in Pali is called samvega. It translates as a kind of spiritual urgency. And I don't think this is necessarily a stranger to us. In those moments when we see images of a child dying needlessly, of poverty or, or disease, when we really see and are disturbed and our hearts tremble, when a person that we love 
suddenly becomes gravely ill. And as unhesitatingly at the forefront of our minds is the wish to reach out, to help, to heal. We're wholeheartedly present in those moments. We can also experience it ourselves in moments when our worlds and our certainties crumble through illness or through loss or through a breakdown in trust. These are not the moments when we get lost in fantasy or in planning. These are the moments when there is a spiritual urgency, when actually we really know how important it is to find the courage to be upright in our lives, to find refuge. This kind of some vague or spiritual urgency is not about haste or, or intensity, but it's somehow about sincerity and commitment and compassion. We know how easy it is to be forgetful and to think there is a better day to be awake. And I think some Vegas really knowing there isn't a better day. You know, John Kabat-Zinn kind of, uh, he, he once said, you know, the time to weave your parachute is not the moment you're about to jump out of the plane. It's better we're weaving our parachute day to day, moment to moment. Some Vega, this kind of sense of spiritual urgency, is also the desire that can be answered. We can open, we can serve, we can embody compassion. And now for the bad news. Now I want to look at the dimension of desire that has no answer, that can never be answered, and that has no end. In Pali, the word is tanha, which translates as unquenchable thirst. This is a realm of desire that rather than ending suffering brings yet more suffering. And tanha, or unquenchable thirst or craving, is the desire that is the servant of the belief in insufficiency and digs the pit of insufficiency a little bit deeper each time it is pursued. And I, in, certainly in my experience, if we truly want to bring about the end of suffering, not just the end of emotional and psychological suffering in our own lives, but the end of suffering in our world, then craving really needs to be understood. And it really needs to be released. And this is a radical invitation because we live in a culture that promotes craving. We do live in a culture that says craving is something to pursue and is, may very well deliver. It is no surprise to me the, the levels of depression in the Western world today. Because how much disappointment there is when this promise of craving fails to deliver. And when we have staked our happiness and our well-being upon somehow craving, delivering happiness. 
The understanding, releasing craving, is an invitation to freedom. It's an invitation to understand what genuine sufficiency is. It's an invitation to dignity. Because just as craving is a, is a servant of the belief of insufficiency, it constantly diminishes our sense of inner freedom and completeness whenever it is adopted. And I really feel that it's so important to, to honestly know and to feel the landscape of craving and to feel its agitation and its painfulness and to know that each time we pursue craving, there is an abandonment of our heart's capacity for contentment and freedom. Because I think if we can really feel that landscape of craving, that's where we find the inner willingness to step out of its discontent and to step out of its sorrow. There is a kind of closed feedback loop in craving. Believing and feeling inwardly a sense of lack and a sense of insufficiency in the moment and in ourselves, we go out searching the world, searching the world of things, of people, of experiences, to try and answer that sense of lack and insufficiency, to try and answer or fill that sense that there is something missing. And we do have momentary successes, you know? It's not to say that we're always unsuccessful. We do have these momentary successes, you know, where we get what we want. Isn't that amazing? But they're momentary, aren't they? And then we become once more aware of a, a, a growing disquiet, a growing hunger. And then once more we go in search uh, of ways to answer that. It's a kind of more policy, you know, more pleasant sense impressions, more sights, more food, more exciting sensations and experiences, and it keeps reinforcing lack of not enough inwardly. So I want to spend a little bit of time just looking at the cravings, the dimensions of craving that keep us agitated. The first one is the craving for sensual pleasure. Pleasant sights, sounds, taste, touch. Our eyes, our ears, our bodies, our minds become hungry in that craving. Even we get a sense that the sense of I is a kind of appetite. Prowling in the world, like looking, chasing the mirage in the desert, Believing we can only be happy in the midst of pleasant experience. And also believing that the source of joy and freedom and happiness lies elsewhere outside of ourselves. This is the kind of ideology of insufficiency. It's the ideology of the belief in lack. So we tie our happiness and unhappiness our sense of success and failure to what we succeed in getting and what we succeed in getting rid of. 
Now what the Buddha discovered and what countless practitioners through time have discovered that when we can find the willingness to step out of the fires of craving, the fires of discontent, that when we can find as we're finding here, the willingness to be still and to begin to calm our minds and bodies and to cultivate a sense of collectedness, you know what, we begin to discover in our own hearts and minds an inwardly generated profound joy and happiness and peace and serenity that is greater than any happiness that is going to be born of craving. We begin to discover an inner freedom and liberation, a happiness and joy that is not tied to getting or getting rid of anything. Certainly there is so much in the world that is truly delightful, that is truly lovely. and We see that when we're here. But what we're really discovering and what we're really cultivating in our practice is our capacity to be delighted. Because if, when we are lost in discontent, we could be in the most lovely and delightful environment and situation of life and know no happiness. What we're really cultivating is our capacity of our hearts and minds to be delighted, to be gladdened, and more importantly, to find contentment in the midst of all things. It is, you know, we don't ask you to go through this, you know, incredible regime of sitting and walking as a punishment. You know, we don't ask you to stretch yourselves the way that you're asked to stretch yourself on retreat because it's somehow virtuous or good for you, but because this is the way, as countless people have discovered through time, as we discovered, this is the way that we begin to connect with that inwardly generated joy and spaciousness and happiness and well-being. In a way, what we're doing here is practicing peace. We're practicing spaciousness. We're practicing contentment. And actually, we begin to taste the happiness of our own hearts. And that, in a very real sense, is a taste of freedom. It's a taste of freedom. So the first kind of craving is a craving for sensual pleasure. The second kind of craving is the craving to become. This is a really weighty one. This is a really weighty one. In our culture, we call it, one way we call it is (laughs) self-improvement. It's the ideology of self-improvement. Now, this desire to become is not the same as the wholesome and skillful longings for respect and integrity and creativity to embody what we most deeply value and treasure. The craving to become is all about selfing. The craving to become lovely, lovable, acceptable. The craving to become worthy. Resting upon, guess what? That same belief in insufficiency. We are not enough. We're not good enough. We're not worthy enough. We're not lovable enough. 
So we pursue identities and states and experiences that somehow tell us we are worthy. And we don't always see in that craving to become how much we can be abandoning acceptance and compassion and the sufficiency of our own hearts. Now, in this belief in insufficiency and in this domain of craving, we may find ourselves seeking and hoarding praise and approval, molding ourselves to the expectations of others, seeking for approval and affirmation. It's a pretty toxic craving. It really is this craving to become. And what is the effect of that? Does it ennoble our lives, our hearts, or instead does it diminish us? And we see that if we go through life seeking and hoarding approval and praise, guess what? We're going to also hoard its opposite. We're going to hoard blame. We're going to hoard criticism, perceiving judgments as ultimate truths, given authority. And lost in that craving is the truth that authenticity remains something incredibly elusive. I can hardly think of any other impulse, any other craving than the craving to become that has been so detrimental to people's freedom. Because we, we live in the mercy, at the, at the mercy of the need for approval and perfection. And that's to live in fear, to live in fear of failure, to live in fear of rejection. So what do we do in practice? Well, we do become increasingly sensitive to this craving to become, even when it's a craving to become the perfect meditator who has a certain kind of experience. You know, the craving to become you know, the best of all yogis, the craving to become happy. I mean, <laughs> such a task. <clears throat> so what do we do in the practice? Well, we learn to become increasingly sensitive to this voice of the inner critic, the voice of the inner judge, and to begin to question, is this actually telling us something true? Or is this really telling us the story of the craving to become and the, and the, the, the process and the habit of self-abandonment? Is this story of judgment and criticism so weighing many people down? Is this not the end of the story of insufficiency and generating this kind of sense of need and craving with its an somewhat inevitable sense of disappointment in ourselves? So what do we do in the practice? Well, we become sensitive. We learn to question the story of insufficiency, the story of me. We begin actually to realize I'm not telling the story of insufficiency or imperfection. It's telling me who I am. That's interesting. The story is telling me who I am. We discover that the story of I arises with the story of discontent and craving and insufficiency. And in learning to make our home in stillness, learning to make our home in more inner quietude, 
we begin to see not only the rise in the story, the passing of the story, but we also begin to see it as a story. It's so interesting to see how much the whole process of selfing, craving, clinging, agitation, it's like they're all threads in the same tangled knot. And if we unravel any one of those threads, we start to unravel the whole of the knot. A crave, uh, uh, authenticity and creativity and inner authority, really the qualities that ennoble our lives, are not born of craving or a perfect self. They're even sufficiency is not something we gain or attain. But in many ways, that sense of inner freedom is, is almost really rediscovered. Stepping out of, into the cool, stepping out of the fires of agitation and the belief in insufficiency. And again, I'm really happy this is a short list because this is the third dimension of tanha or unquenchable thirst. It's the craving for non-existence. It's equally the craving that robs our lives and hearts of nobility. Now, this craving for non-existence, on, on a more moderate level, we find it in all the moments when we're pushing something away. We want it to disappear. We want to get rid of something, the flicker of a, flickers of aversion that lead, ourself, lead us to divorce ourselves from what is. the fear of discomfort, the fear of being overwhelmed, the fear of being annihilated. On more extreme levels, it's the endeavors to make ourselves disappear, to disappear into numbness, to not feel, to not experience. Also on more extreme levels, we feel that desire for non-becoming, that craving for non-becoming, in avoidance, in rage, in blame. There's a poem by Rumi. He says, who makes these changes? I I shoot an arrow right, it lands left. I ride after a deer and find myself chased by a hog. I plot to get what I want and end up in prison. I dig pits to trap others and fall in myself. I should be suspicious of what I want. In our practice, we learn to, instead of pushing away, instead of pursuing, instead of numbing out, instead of trying to become, we're learning a lot about our capacities for acceptance and kindness and compassion, seeking seeking sufficiency, cultivating sufficiency moment to moment, learning the courage to face the winds of the difficult with spaciousness and equanimity. If we understand the causes of suffering and are able to release ourselves really from the grip of craving, we will come to know the end of suffering and discontent. When the Buddha described the landscape of liberation, he described this complete freedom of heart and mind from the compulsions 
of craving. And he called this freedom really the taste of the Dharma, an ennobled life. And in this path, in this teaching, we're really encouraged to know for ourselves that taste of freedom in as many moments when you may taste it. Many moments when you see some of those compulsions of craving arise and you're able just to let them be rather than be driven. It's not easy and it's not about rejecting craving because quite frankly that's another form of craving. The craving to get rid of something. But it's to know its nature, to know its source, to know its arising, to know its passing, and perhaps to know in ourselves that all those moments of hunger, all those moments of compulsion, of rejection, of pursuit, in a way, they're reflexes of the belief in insufficiency and lack. And we learn to be still a little bit in those ways. And it's not so much that we let go of craving, but actually in stillness and quietude and the willingness to attend, you know what, craving kind of lets go of itself. If you don't follow its ways, there's nothing to sustain it. And really it lets go of itself. And every time this happens, we're tasting something else. The freedom of being ungoverned. The freedom of uprightness and dignity and poise. It's almost like the little cravings and the big cravings, the little and the driving compulsions, the little and the great aversions. It's almost like they're they're arms and legs of one body, and it's the body of lack. It's the body of insufficiency. But it's also true that the small and the great moments of stillness, of calm, the small and the great moments of uprightness and spaciousness and kindness and compassion, these are also the arms and legs of one body. And it's the body of sufficiency. And that is the body that ennobles our life and ennobles our hearts. Take just a moment quietly together. Thank you for your attention. This time's a walking period. I'm going to come back to sit.